Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Museums of an ADD Mind podcast. This show is Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. Guess what, folks? It is another exciting episode of Science with Lars. So he's going to teach us something sciencey because that's his thing. That's his jam, <laughs> <right>. his gig. <laughs> so uh, I, I once again, I it's always a shock for me, just like you, what Lars is going to talk about today. So I'm going to punt the ball over to Lars, and he's going to, I guess, dive into it. All right. Yeah, let's get going. So today I would like to talk about another one of my big interests, geology. Um, geology is the study of the earth. It comes from geo meaning earth and logos meaning the study of or the knowledge of. And that's what we study in geology. It's a very wide ranging field. In fact, um, it, short of cosmology, as we talked about earlier, you really can't get much wider ranging. It would cover the entire earth. So um, there's two main branches of geology. Uh, there's historical geology and there's physical geology. So historical geology covers the history of the earth and its geological formations. There are things like mountains, rivers, canyons, fossils, rocks, strata, caves, oceans, you name it. The history of it is covered in historical geology and the actual composition and processes of it covered in physical geology. So what are the mountains made of? How tall are they? Why do they have the composition that they do? That's all covered under physical geology. Um, there's obviously a lot of overlap between them. You have to know one to know the other uh, in many different cases. And in fact, that is sort of the theme of the history of geology, as we're going to discuss in a bit, of different ideas coming together where people had parts of the idea in one place, parts of idea in another place or another time. And eventually they were they came together into a more full picture of what's happening or what has happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, the earliest study of geology, if we can even call it that, would have been, as with many of these things, back with the ancient Greeks. Uh, this is the earliest records we have of people studying the earth to understand it, or at least having ideas about the formation and history of the earth beyond religious ones. Of course, we obviously should mention religious ones because uh, in, especially in American culture, there are still a lot of uh, people who consider themselves young earth creationists, and they believe uh, many religious things about the history of the earth and Many of them try, very unsuccessfully, to show that evidence actually supports their particular religious ideas about it. We don't need to get into that here. Uh, there's plenty of places on the internet and elsewhere to find the history of that and why it doesn't actually make sense. But uh, it's yeah, worth that, mentioning. That's a fun rabbit hole. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, but yeah, it is a very deep rabbit hole, uh, one which we don't need to go into today. Uh, I will just mention that it's, you know, if we look at ancient writings, including the Hebrew Bible, uh, we do see a lot of different ideas about the earth. Many people thought that the earth had essentially always been there. They would talk about their God or gods creating the earth, but usually it was a very indefinite point in time or even to even call it a point in time might be too much. Uh, ancient cultures had a much uh, I don't know, richer understanding of mythology than we do, but a more present understanding of mythology. Now we treat mythology as stories, as separate from reality. Whereas they are permeated their reality. Right. So 
to ask someone how old is the earth might not have been a meaningful question to them. They would both say that the earth had always been there and that God had created or their gods had created it. And in fact, you do see this in the Bible because anytime you see any sort of temporal word associated with the earth in the Bible, it's things like ancient or everlasting. Right. And yet they also talk about the beginning of the earth or laying the foundations of the earth. So th these ideas were held, even perhaps even tension isn't the right word, but they permeated the cultural milieu. And let's face it, they weren't all that important to the people back then. They needed to be able to find good soil for their crops and places to mine precious ores, but they didn't really think of the history of the earth as being important to those things. Now we actually understand that they are, and it helps us make better decisions about farming and mining um, and city planning. But at the scale they were doing it back then, it just didn't matter. However, uh, if we get into actual evidence-based thought on the topic, we see back in the ancient Greeks uh, in 540 and four, around 490 BCE, respectively, the Greek philosophers Xenophanes and Herodotus uh, actually described fossils in their writings. Um, now, it's not clear just how well they understood what they were seeing, uh, although uh, if we get into Roman times, uh, I was Pliny the Elder was able to correctly identify that resin was the basis for amber fossils because he saw insects inside them and realized that that must be how they got there. Um, but for a long time, fossils were not well understood to be the remains of past life that they are now. Right. We'll get into that a little bit more later. Uh, the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle also had some thoughts on the earth, and he understood, at least in principle, if not necessarily by experimentation, that the earth's formations change over time. And that's really a big deal. That's uh, perhaps the fundamental idea in all of geology is that the earth changes over time, um, that there might be a mountain here now, but it was not always there and it won't always be there. There's a river here now. And again, it wasn't always there and it won't always be there. Here, here's what he said. I'd like to read a translation of his writing because I thought it was rather interesting to hear from that long ago what people were thinking of the changes in the earth. He Ooh. says, so it is clear since there will be no end to time and the world is eternal, there's that idea again, that neither the Tenai nor the Nile has always been flowing, but that the region whence they flow was once dry, for their effect may be fulfilled, but time cannot. And this will be equally true of all other rivers. But if rivers come into existence and perish and the same parts of the earth were not always moist, the sea must needs change correspondingly. And if the sea is always advancing one place and receding in another, it is clear that the same parts of the whole earth are not always either sea or land, but that all this changes in the course of time. As I mentioned, you know, that you see both both the idea of change, but also the idea right. of an eternal or unending, eternal and unending earth. Right. Um, it, again, the idea of creation was not to them a so much a temporal thing, but a a matter of place or of order set by the god or gods. Right, right. So the uh the history of geology. It's a very fascinating one, and I won't have time to do it justice today, but I'll, I'd like to go over a few of the uh, major points in it. I mentioned that, as I said, the ancient Greeks, and while there was some work on it done uh, in what we call the Middle Ages, uh, it wasn't most of it, at least, done in Europe. And unfortunately, the scholarship from those times didn't really have the wide-ranging impact that it could have if it had been part of the, well, all-conquering, colonizing Europeans. Um, there were some Muslim scholars like uh, Abu al-Rayyan al-Biruni or Ibn Sina. Um, there was a Chinese scholar, uh, Shen Kuo. They all had some ideas about geology that were 
at least somewhat accurate. They understood the um, changing of the earth. They had ideas about fossils that were accurately representing them as ancient life, but they didn't really have the wide impact that uh, I wish they would have had. The things like could have been understood much sooner had they been able to disseminate their works further abroad. So getting into the 17th century, yes, I realize we've gone from 500 BC to the 17th century CE. It, there's a lot of time where not that much was learned about geology, unfortunately. It's the um, cliff notes of the cliff notes. It really is. It really is. Um, <laughs> and it, it is, in fact, uh, not that dissimilar to medicine. Uh, there were some early ideas of medicine that where people started to learn things and then they kind of got cemented and there just wasn't much learned about it for over a thousand years, 2000 even in some cases. And as mentioned before, religious ideas had a strong influence on ideas about the history of the earth. Again, partly because it just wasn't all that important to know about the real history of these things. And if you had at least a history, it was better than having none. And so the religious ideas prevailed. In 1696, a uh, man named William Whiston published a book called A New Theory of the Earth, in which he explained his ideas about the formations of the rocks and mountains and rivers and such as being the result of the global flood described in the aforementioned Hebrew Bible. And people knew that floods could deposit rock or deposit mud and rocks and figured eh, this makes enough sense. And that was kind of it. That was the prevailing idea for a while. However, also around the same time, Nicholas Stano um, was a, he, he was raised Lutheran, but eventually converted to Catholicism. Um, but before that, he had a lot of very interesting observations and ideas about the age of the earth. And his most important ideas were probably his laws of stratigraphy. Stratigraphy is the understanding of the layers of rocks in Earth's surface or Earth's crust. Uh, if you've been anywhere where there are visible rock formations, you've probably seen how they change through the course of the rock. Yes, uh, this, yes. And you'll see the large banding uh, of rocks that are broadly similar, overlain by rocks that are broadly similar to each other, but not similar to the ones below or above them, or overlain or underlaid. And he was also one of the first to recognize that what had been called tongue stones up to that point, uh, thinking that they were the tongues of snakes that had been turned to stone. <laughs> now, yeah, it's strange, but he right realized that, wait, these are actually very similar to the teeth of sharks. Uh, and recognize that these actually probably had been the teeth of real sharks at some point in the past. It seems really obvious to us now. We can see the very obvious resemblance. But again, since people had not given much thought to the history of the Earth and just took what was apparent to them, if these things look like tongues to them, then that's what they were going to call them. Yep. And I don't want to say that people were stupid. Again, it's more a matter of there was no need to investigate further. They had an explanation. It didn't make a whole lot of difference to how they treated the Earth. And so... They were tungsten, but Steno recognized that they are parts of an animal that isn't alive anymore. While this seems obvious to us now, many things that we now take for granted were actually hard-won knowledge of the past. When people say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, we often don't realize just how many giants that we're standing on here. Right. And I always like to, when I'm forming the history of these disciplines, take time to appreciate that somebody had to have these ideas first. Knowledge doesn't come from just musing, but actually testing your ideas and seeing how they correspond to reality. As we've talked about with the philosophy of science before, 
the more we do that, the more knowledge we get and the more becomes background to future generations. So I, in a sense, envy the future generations because they'll have more knowledge as background than we ever did today. And yep. generations beyond them will as well, short of some sort of civilization ending catastrophe. But as I mentioned about Seno, his greatest contribution to geology was the uh, laws of stratigraphy. The laws and science, as we mentioned before, are generalizations of phenomena that have been observed across time and space to hold true, at least within the context of their purview. The first is the law of superposition. The law of superposition is that one bit of strata is laid down, or a stratum, singular, is laid down, and then another is laid on top of it. You don't get mixing of two different kinds of strata at the same time. So if you have a lake bed that fills in, you're going to have one kind of stratum. And then as it goes up and becomes a plain and you get soil on top, you're going to get a new type of stratum on top of that. When it goes down again because the earth sinks and a river flows through, you're going to get yet another kind of stratum at that point. When a glacier comes through and drops rocks on top of it, you're going to get yet another. And each of these is going to be different by composition and by physical characteristics. The next principle is that of original horizontality. Sounds a little bit of a mouthful. It just means that <laughs> when the materials are laid down, they're flat. Um, and this is very obvious. If you pour out water, it will fill in whatever space you pour it into. And it'll have a flat surface relative to the earth around it. Obviously, it'll curve around um, sufficiently large portions of the earth where you can detect the curvature. But um, at any given place, it will be locally flat. The next is the principle of lateral continuity. So that any at any time it was being formed, any time material is being laid down that eventually becomes rock, it is going to be contiguous in the boundary in which it's being laid down. So again, if we're talking about a lake, the entire bottom of the lake is going to be filled with well, whatever goes into the lake and settles to the bottom. Right. Um, and it's going to not be interrupted except by some sort of barrier or discontinuity in the environment. So at the border of the lake, well, you're just not going to get any more lake bottom. Uh, and finally, there is the principle of cross-cutting. So if there is observed today um, a stratum or set of strata, and there is a crack through them filled in with another mineral, that mineral and crack must have come in later after the strata were already laid down. Because you can't put a break in something while it's still liquid. It'll just fill back in. Right, right. So <laughs> these form the first real scientific laws, again, as descriptions, of geology. So that's Nicholas Seno. Again, we, I don't want to take too much time in the history here because there's also a lot in the actual uh, physical science. Uh, I want to mention James Hutton. Uh, he was one of the first real modern geologists, but he was he was the first to argue that, or not one, not the first, but one of the first to argue for what's known as plutonism, the idea that the earth and its formations formed through the gradual cooling of molten rock. Now, this is correct. Many parts of the earth have formed this way. He was arguing against the Neptunists, who thought that most of the earth's formations came from water. Turns out, both of these are correct. As I mentioned earlier, the history of geology is one where you have multiple ideas from disparate areas coming together to form a more complete picture. And right, as right. we know now, there are plutons. There are, uh, for example, the Half Dome cliff that, that rock climbers love to go on is a pluton. It is a solidified core of an old volcano, if I'm not mistaken. Or a, not volcano, but a magma chamber. Right. But also, there are many 
places where strata was laid down by water, as mentioned, you know, ancient lake beds or canyons or things like that. These are made by water. So you also see the human element of science in this kind of thing, where people get an idea and they really like their idea and it just feels so right to them. And they argue really strenuously for an idea as opposed to seeing where the data actually leads. Whenever you try to fit data to an idea as opposed to fit your idea to the data, you're not going to get a complete picture at best. Now, that, again, that said, he recognized that, and, and others recognized around the same time, that the various rock formations that were being observed could not possibly have been formed in the less than 10,000 years that many people thought the earth was based on religious ideas at the time, or especially Christian and Jewish religious ideas. There are other uh, religions that have other ideas about it. For example, Hinduism uh, places the age of the earth even older than its currently understood age of four and a half billion years. We can get into that in a little bit, uh, the age of the earth, that is. The next figure I want to talk about is William Smith. Um, he was a mining surveyor. He was the first to recognize that you could reliably identify various strata by the fossils found in them. Again, if you know anything at all about geology, you've probably heard of index fossils. Index fossils are those which exist within a particular band of strata, meaning you're not going to find them in deposits that were made early, much earlier or much later than a particular time. They existed across a wide range. So they have distribution probably through an ocean or possibly over land uh, in a little wide area. And they exist for a relatively uh, short period of time with a consistent shape or a consistent identifier. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, there's uh, Graffea oysters. They are found in a particular time period. There are many species of them, and they can reliably be used to identify a particular stratum. Uh, and this will also be predictive of the other kinds of fossils you'll find in it. It'll be predictive of the kinds of minerals you might find in it. It'll even be predictive of things like petroleum deposits in some cases. Yes, my my wife's uncle has made a very, very comfortable living as a geologist going and finding oil. Yes, yeah. Um, and we'll get into the practical applications of geology in a bit. I just wanted to kind of preview that yeah, here. Yeah. But uh, this is part of why geology became more and more important is because of its economic impact. As the world's population grew and industrialization increased, it became ever more important to be able to find metals and find good places for farmland instead of just poking around and seeing if it was if you could find metal under the ground or you know seeing if something would sprout you could use your understanding of geology to figure out where you'd be best able to locate a farm or build a road or find iron or gold deposits predictively rather than just by digging around and hoping you find something good so you know being able to start turning geology into a predictive science you know, it was one of the things that actually helped bring about and go, you know, and, and expand what we call the Industrial Revolution. Once you're able to accurately locate iron and oil and coal, well, you can do a lot with those things. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, at the same time, like I said, people were recognizing more and more that, hey, these ideas just don't correspond with the religious ideas that we've had about the age of the earth so far. And What's very interesting is that many of these early geologists thought that they were finding, going to go find evidence of a global deluge or recent creation and kept finding evidence against it. And they were smart enough and humble enough to recognize that, hey, I have to fit, change my ideas to fit the data. I can't change the data to fit my ideas. Correct. Also, around the same time, 
uh, or by, by this time we're in the early early 19th century, around the 1820s, famous geologists William Buckland and Adam Sedgwick, they proposed what was what's known as catastrophism, uh, the idea that much of Earth's geological history has been shaped by great catastrophes, like, of course, what they thought of the global flood of, of the Bible or uh, earthquakes. Um, they hadn't really gotten the idea of extraterrestrial impacts yet, although that is definitely something that geologists can study now. And they identified many uh, what we now recognize as marine deposits as diluvial or from a flood. Others had the idea of uniformitarianism, that basically everything is about the same now as it always has been, and that processes that act on rocks and the earth today acted the same way in the past. Well, again, this is an idea, uh, another case of both ideas being correct. There are many catastrophes that have shaped Earth's surface and its history. Uh, there have been great earthquakes, impacts, and even very large floods. Uh, for example, like much of the entire state of Washington was once flooded by a uh, bursting glacial dam. More than so, once, I believe. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating story, uh, a great example of someone following the evidence even to a, an initially unpopular conclusion because people were worried that it sounded too much like like a religious flood idea right. that um, persistence uh, and data eventually went out and recognized that, yes, there have been very large floods at various times in Earth's history. Um, but also, we recognize that many of the processes that happen on Earth today, things that produce, for example, very fine deposits like at the bottom of lakes or rounded rocks at the bottom of rivers or sand at beaches, did the same? those things happen the same way in the past? And so if we find sandstone, we know that it was probably made in the same way that sand is made now. If we find limestone from uh, animals with ca uh, calcium carbonate body parts, it was probably made with by animals with calcium carbonate body parts in the past. If we find if we find a filled in ravine or a canyon, it was probably formed by water cutting through the rock at some point in the past, just like we see canyons forming today. So, you know, we, we, you know, we had the idea of Neptunism and Plutonism coming together to recognize that rocks form in both hot and, and wet ways. We had catastrophism and uniformitarianism coming together with what geologists now call actualism, that catastrophes happen and gradual things happen. All right, so this brings us up to the 20th century. Again, we're skipping over a lot, uh, but some highlights that I want to mention here are um, 1911, a man named Arthur Holmes recognized that if radioactive elements decay at a constant rate, because they had been recently discovered, as mentioned in the uh, previous episode, that would suggest that they could be used as a sort of a natural clock. Um, and way back then, 1911, again, managed to use this information to estimate the age of a sample at 1.6 billion years. Uh, using uranium and lead isotopes. Now, this didn't get a lot of traction yet because it was pretty uh, it's pretty out there at the time. But this eventually led to uh, the modern science of radiometric dating where a radioactive isotope is measured against its stable products. Stable meaning they don't break down into other elements. And there are multiple known methods of doing this where certain rocks can form and they will essentially retain all of the radioactive elements in them, and they don't leach out. And if they do, if from like water or cracks, then those are not considered suitable for radiometric dating. 
but there are a number of kinds of minerals and rocks that will retain these materials. And you can then count the atoms with something called a mass spectrometer or count the amount of radioactive decay still occurring to figure out how long this rock has been in a solid state. Uh, because once they cool from being magma or lava, then the elements are basically set in place there. And the only way they'll change is by radioactive decay. This led to, uh, by 1956, uh, a man named Claire Patterson and his team, while trying to identify sources of lead in our environment, uh, also worked out that meteorites, which would have formed around the same time as the Earth, would probably have rocks that were about as old as the Earth and could be then be measured by comparing the uranium and the lead that it uranium decays into to see how old the Earth is. And in 1956, published the first accurate estimate of the Earth's age at about 4.55 billion years. Uh, it's been uh, updated a bit since then with more accurate measurements. The current best estimate of the Earth's age is about 4.543 billion years, plus or minus about 50 million years. That plus or minus is partly due to measurement error, but also due to having no exact definition for the Earth at its present size, because the Earth is always gaining mass from space and losing some to space because of like atmospheric outgassing. So this is the best estimate we have available, and it's only been refined within the margin of error since the 1950s. Also, back at the same time as Arthur Holmes was developing ideas about the age of the Earth from radioactivity, a man named Alfred Wegener was looking at the Earth's strata across the entire planet. And as any of you who have seen a globe or a world map have probably noticed, many of the continents have borders that seem to fit with the other continents. Uh, the most obvious, at least the way we usually see world maps portrayed now, is the match between the eastern end of North and South America and the western end of Europe and Africa. And while people had noticed this for a long time, they'd basically chalked it up to coincidence. Um, but Wegener started looking at the actual strata between these, um, between these continents and realized that they were chemically the same, they had the same fossils in the same order, and that if you just put them all together, you would end up with a single geographic range for these kinds of fossils and for the types of environments that would put down the strata that were observed. And so he proposed the idea of continental drift. Yes. In 1912. Unfortunately, he was laughed out of the establishment by many scientists at the time who had rightly objections to the fact that there was no apparent way for this to actually work. <laughs> right. Was, yeah. Um, while they understood that, yes, okay, these observations are valid. There are indeed fossils and strata that cut across the continents or that seem to cut across the continents, continents don't move as far as I knew. It was not until just after World War II with submarines and ships taking measurements of the depth of the ocean floor that people realized that there are places in the ocean where the earth is splitting apart. Uh, we call these the mid-oceanic ridges. And they realized that gravity, water, and heat from the inside of the earth work together to spread the continents apart in some places and push them under each other in others. This is called right. uh, seafloor spreading uh, at the mid-ocean ridges and subduction at the edges where at the trenches where they where the continents, one continent goes under the other, I should say. Um, and this forms the modern theory of geology of plate tectonics. So 
again, this is an example of different ideas coming together. There were ideas already at the time of uplift and subsidence. That's where land goes up or land goes down. There were ideas about earthquakes and volcanoes. And Begner had his idea of continental drift. And once this observation was made of the seafloor spreading, they realized that these all came together into one unified idea that explains pretty much everything in geology. It's, it's a very, yeah. it's a beautiful example to me of the scientific process working from multiple lines of knowledge to produce a single mm -hmm. result that helps us understand everything that we already understood and understand new things in an even better way than we ever could have before. Right, um, right. One of the things I think is so cool, and this is obviously a major oversimplification, is that the Appalachians and the Scottish Highlands are the same mountain range. Yes, yes. It's the same mountain range. It also <laughs> continues in Africa. Um, it, it's a very interesting thing. And in fact, the Appalachians, there's a reason why they are much shorter than the Rockies, because they have been eroding for over 200 million years, while the Rockies are still growing, because right. on the western and to the United States, you have the Pacific tectonic plate. That's you know much of the Pacific Ocean um, pushing against the western edge. And as it pushes, it crushes the land together. Now, imagine it, for example, if you had a sheet of flat aluminum foil and you had you held it down with one hand and then use your other hand to push in the edge, you would start getting bumps in front of your fingers. And that's exactly what's happening to the continents. Yep. They squeeze together and push up mountains. And as sometimes as these mountains get pushed up, the rock underneath gets so hot that it melts and explodes up the top. That produces volcanoes. When the continents slip past each other as they're squeezing together, that produces earthquakes. When one continent is going under the other, it moves the land up. When a continent is getting pushed down over at the other edge, that makes it subside. And so this explains all the things we see in geology, right? It explains mountains, earthquakes, volcanoes. It also explains why we have metamorphic rock because all this pressure and heat from the continents pushing together changes rock that was once uh, strat um, that was once you know laid down as strata into another chemically distinct or at least physically distinct type of rock. Right. And I realized I, I forgot to mention one of the basic things about geology is three main types of rocks. Um, and the we, I've mentioned them all, but not really by name. There are there are sedimentary rocks. These are rocks that are produced by the placement and hardening of sediment from water, from wind. Uh, from erosion on land, from glaciers, various things, dropping material, and eventually it gets uh, cemented together chemically and hardened into rock. Uh, there are igneous rocks. These are rocks that form from the melting of, a melting and hardening of other kinds of rock. And there are metamorphic rocks, rocks that are physically changed in characteristic by heat and pressure from being one kind into another kind of rock that is physically distinct. Um, now, obviously, there's gradations between these. There's no, I assume, many things in science. It's difficult to have a sharp cutoff of what what's one kind and another. A uh, good example would be uh, volcanic ash deposits. Well, those are made of igneous particles uh, because they were blown out of a volcano and hardened from magma, but then also are part of sedimentary rock because they deposit out of the air. So, right, you know, yeah. it, it's a it's a useful model, but as we said before, all models are wrong some are more useful than others <laughs> so that the very brief look at the history of geology um i'm leaving many important and interesting things out um i highly recommend doing some more reading on the subject uh, if it is at all interesting to you um but let's talk a bit about the actual uh geology as it's practiced today and what it, what we get out of it 
So as mentioned, we have the different kinds of rocks and just recognizing these can tell us a lot about what we want to do with the rocks. Um, for example, if there is a place where uh, rock has been melted and pushed up through the crust, then it may contain heavier elements that have that would have melted and sunk down into the crust. And that's a good place to find heavy metals like gold, for example. If we find a place where uh, there were once bogs or forests that were subject to subsidence where the land went down and was covered over by more sediment and the plants were compressed under great amounts of heat and pressure for a long time, we can find coal. Uh, if we find places that regularly experience earthquakes because there are tectonic plates uh, pushing against each other, that might not be a good place to build a big city like, oh, San Francisco, for example. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unfortunately, sometimes these places are already already there uh, and they just do, do the best they can to mitigate against it. But with a better understanding of geology, future cities are being, current and future cities rather, are being built with an understanding of earthquake safety. So they don't build them on fault lines so much. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> the, this also is helpful for uh, farmland. As I mentioned before, if you understand the history of the, of the soil, you can find better places without having to even go there and start growing, find better places to grow your food. Uh, there's a fascinating uh, example of a map showing where there was an ancient uh, seashore uh, in the middle U.S. that uh, allowed for the deposition of very nutrient-rich organic sediment. This band of, or, of rich organic soil uh, became very good cropland in the United States South. And as you are probably aware, that attracted, unfortunately, slaveholders. Uh, bringing enslaved people over from Africa. And now today, that same band of ancient seashore is now home to one of the densest African-American populations in the United States. It's amazing what geology can tell us about modern sociopolitical demographics. Right. Um, and as I keep trying to mention in every one of these episodes, the more knowledge we gain from the scientific process, the more it all comes together in many interesting and sometimes unexpected ways. Almost everything you have in your modern life is now affected by geology. The plastics in your, well, everything that you have that's plastic, which is probably a lot of things in your house, are made from fossil fuels. Uh, the petroleum is treated with chemicals and turned into plastics through various processes. And petroleum is found by analyzing geology, finding the age and history of various sedimentary rock basins, as they're known. Um, the fuel that you put in your car or the electricity that you use to power your car is probably generated using fossil fuels. Again, that's found using geology. If you get your power from a nuclear reactor, again, the nuclear fuel, the uranium or plutonium, um, if they end up using that, is, that goes into that is again found using geological surveys not just digging randomly. The roads are paved with rocks that are mined, knowing where you can get those kind of rocks, and held together with tar, which is, again, a petroleum product. Your house is built with stone or brick mined from places where these things are found. And again, it's not just, as the ancients may have done it, just looking at the ground and seeing what you can see. We know where to find these things now. And geology helps undergird our entire modern way of life and economy. So... You know, next time you 
pick up your phone made of plastic and glass and silicon and uh, look at it while watching your television made of the same things, while eating your crops grown on soil that was found and um, located using geologic processes. Thank a geologist. Uh, be glad you live on a dynamic earth where things change, um, but not so fast that usually, at least, your house falls down. <laughs> right. And I think that's uh, that's where we're going to stop for today. Um, there's obviously much you can learn about this topic. People get whole PhDs in it. Maybe I will someday. Uh, but it's a fascinating topic, one that I've always enjoyed, and one that, personally to me, also uh, helped change my views about science and religion in general. And you can hear more about that in the uh, story I've shared on the Graceful Atheist podcast. Yes. Yep. Yep. Well, I feel like I have uh, achieved our goal for the day. I've learned a few things, which I hope uh, our listening friends have learned a few things. And as usual, I appreciate you taking time out of your day uh, to do this. It seems weird that we are now about uh, halfway through the Science with Lars feature since we're going to end season one at the uh, end of May. So it just seems weird that we're about, you know, halfway through this little uh, uh, teaching experiment that we've been on this season. But um, once again, I, I appreciate it. Uh, you you coming on the show. I'm happy to participate. I love talking about this stuff. I know that. That's why That's why you're a perfect partner to have in this endeavor. Thank you. <laughs> so with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't know how we can modify that to modern times, but... Guys, gals, and non-binary pals. <laughs> thank you. That That's a good one. <laughs> uh, with that, I'm going to end it as I always do. Uh, remember, folks, try to live your life in a way that would make Carl Sagan proud. Bye! Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button. This podcast is a production of Hyperfocused Media.